Welcome to McKnight's Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information from industry leaders. Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Berklin, Executive Editor of McKnight's Long-Term Care News. Huge plan cuts to Medicare funding for nursing homes in fiscal 2023 are fresh on the table. Plans are in place to get federal staffing minimums up and running. In addition to that, regulatory officials are looking to further tighten the screws on owners in several ways. This and other announced initiatives may make you want to ask, are we in new territory for a healthcare sector that already feels it has a long history of being under siege? I asked this question and more to Brian Perry, Vice President of Government Relations and Advocacy for ProMedica. Brian, is this a new era? I think it is. Whether uh, we in the provider community want it to be or not, um, we've got to skate to where the puck is going. So I think this is about as new as we've seen in probably 15 or 20 years and will frankly probably dictate what the next 15 or 20 years look like in this industry. All right. Well, let's start with the SNF PPS rule, particularly the $320 million parity adjustment to PDPM. And actually, that's a $1.7 billion take back uh, if you're looking at the math a different way. How shocking was that to you when you saw that come out? I think the way I would frame it, Jim, is that two things can be true at the same time. I don't know that the the provider community was shocked that there was a parity adjustment in this rule. We've known for well over a year that uh, CMS has been looking at PDPM as having been overspent. And by statute, it must be budget neutral. I don't think anybody's surprised that uh, it is a cut. I think where everybody is shocked is that the cut is coming right now, given given the entire environment of nursing homes in America, given everything we've been through the last two, two and a half years now, it is kind of shocking that at the same time we're talking about layer upon layer of unfunded mandate of regulatory reforms, also talking about a $320 million cut to our rates, raging inflation, you name it. It is, uh, there are a lot of arrows pointed in at this sector and this one really came at a really, really poor time. Now, We're going into probably what's going to be a very active comment period, uh, if any indication is true from history, whatnot. Do you think that's going to make a difference? And do you think that the goal of trying to get this spread out over more than one year has any legs? I really hope so. I know that, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, we all have to tell ourselves that we need to start trusting everybody in this sector. We need the government to trust that skilled nursing providers are actually in this business for the right reason. And I know that the vast, vast majority are. We providers also need to trust that the government has the patient's outcome in mind. Um, I, I hope we're there. I really, truly hope that they look at this and say, how best can we take this $320 million back? Um, spreading it out over a, a period of years seems to make the most sense. I think that it will allow us as providers to try to weather this incredible storm we're in in the easiest way possible. Um, But uh, I think the CMS is going to hear from the provider community. There are um, an awful lot of people coast to coast that I talk to from the C-suite down to, frankly, the nurse aid level that says, really, right now, this is what's happening. And so I really trust that CMS will do their due diligence and really, really put pen to paper and figure out if this is the best time for, you know, a one-time $320 million cut, or if we can find a way to do this a little more reasonably. Okay. Now I, I wanted to go there with, I think you pointed out, what, are, what would this quantify as? I think I saw a calculation how many bodies this might mean. 
Yeah, I think it's always important when we look, when you look, <laughs> when I think about numbers with so many zeros behind them, I need to find ways to humanize them myself. And I was putting pen to paper and I do a lot of work with some various advocates across the community. Some folks, frankly, who are on the other side from where we as providers often are. And I was asking some questions of a dear friend of mine, Lori Porter. Lori runs the National Association of Healthcare Assistants. And I, we were talking a little bit about average salaries and whatnot. And we realized that $320 million is the equivalent to 12,000 certified nursing assistants. And we all know that CNAs are the lifeblood of this sector. They do the hardest job in healthcare. They do it uh, day in, day out through blizzards, rainstorms. They are absolute healthcare heroes. And this is 12,000 CNAs. And I'm not talking that nursing homes are going to fire 12,000 CNAs. What I'm saying is this is $320 million that we can't use to go hire 12,000 new CNAs if we can find them. And when you overlay a $320 million cut and what we could do with those dollars to our care force at the same time that we're being told that we need to go out and hire sometimes two times as many nurses as we currently have today, I think that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's compute. The juxtaposition there is really confusing. And so when you think about 12,000 CNAs, I think that we absolutely have to find a way to pay for some of the staff that we are desperately in need of finding. Okay, and that 12,000 would be on top of how many have left the sector already? I forget how big that number is. You know, so at peak employment in the sector, um, not just nursing homes, but when you think about senior care all in, I think the number is about $3.3 million, or 3.3 million staff. And since that time, we have lost almost half a million people. We've lost over 400,000 jobs just in nursing homes and assisted living since the beginning of this pandemic. And where have they gone? Some folks have gone, you know, to work for Amazon, to work for Costco, to work for Taco Bell. Some of these people will never come back to healthcare. We have such a huge, huge responsibility to figure out how to fix this. And the only way we fix this is in partnership, not just with government, but with the advocate community, sometimes with unions, with trial lawyers, with the press, with the president. We absolutely have to do this together. Typically, what we find are that providers are outside the room screaming to get into the table so that we can be part of the discussion about what will happen to providers. That will always baffle me, but here we are. It's the twilight zone. I mean, look, let's talk about $320 million. You could make this $3.2 billion that you're going to give to the sector, and that does not necessarily mean that we're going to be able to find the nurses that are being required by some of these regulatory proposals that we're you know, very impatiently awaiting. Um, you know, I think that that when you look at this, there is no way that we get out of this without more funding. I know that there are those in the advocate community who think that this is a sector that is sitting on a pile of cash. I look at budgets all the time. I work for a not for not for profit um, company that works in 28 states. I do not see where those dollars are. And I think without additional funding, if we're looking at unfunded mandates, then there's just going to be a run on for sale signs in this sector, which will very, very quickly lead us into what I believe will be the access to care crisis that we'll be talking about for the next 10 or 15 years. Okay, let's uh, turn a little bit now to President Biden's first State of the Union speech. I think I timed it out to be about 19 seconds dedicated toward nursing home interests were actually verbalized, but it sent kind of ripples through the entire sector, I think you'd agree. And as Wall Street firms take over more nursing homes, 
quality in those homes has gone down and costs have gone up. That ends on my watch. Medicare is going to set higher standards for nursing homes and make sure your loved ones get the care they deserve and that they inspect and they will look at closely. You know, when he mentions the reforms that he brought up, the administration had mentioned just the day before, where do you see the reality hitting with that? You know, where do you see the comments about private equity and minimum staffing coming to fruition? You know, it was 19 seconds more than we've ever seen in a State of the Union address about nursing homes. It was a very, very long 19 seconds to listen to as, as we were, you know, gripping our chairs. And I think it's this. When you see something that rises to the level of a State of the Union speech, regardless what it is, Ukraine, us, the economy, inflation, I think that tells you that that you have the president's attention. And in this case, I think the president has been informed, I don't know if it's by staff, by advocates, unions, or whomever, that there were an awful lot of deaths in nursing homes due to COVID. I think that if we just sit back and look at what some of the academic studies have shown, COVID happened in nursing homes where COVID happened in communities. It's been proven in the studies. And this is a congregate care setting. COVID is a a disease that has uh, disproportionately impacted the senior community. Whether they are in their home, whether they are at a theater, or in our case, in a nursing home. When you look at the science, of course it was a nursing home where the most deaths happened. When you look at the flu, sometimes the flu will be a strain that hits seniors harder than children. Some years, it's a disease that hits children harder than seniors. If COVID were something that were attacking children, God forbid, I can't imagine that we would see a president and see regulations that would try to put pediatricians and daycares out of business. Nursing homes have always been low-hanging fruit for advocates and for policymakers. And here we are. This is the perfect storm. We knew in March or April of 2020 that we were going to have a very, very, very difficult back end of a pandemic because what was happening? Was this the fault of nursing homes? Was this the fault of a governor who would force COVID-positive patients into nursing homes? This was the fault of COVID. (laughs) I wish that everybody could understand this. This is the fault of COVID. Nursing home providers built a plane while it was flying in order to find ways to keep patients safe. They sometimes went to Home Depot and built wood and plastic sheathing to create COVID isolation units on the fly. The work that this sector did is something we should all be incredibly proud of. And yet we are being shamed in the press and frankly, in a State of the Union speech for deaths happening in nursing homes. And frankly, I'm proud of the job that senior that senior care providers have done from coast to coast. Are there bad actors in this in this industry? Absolutely. And we should do everything we can to root them out. And if they've committed crimes, send those individuals to jail. I'll drive the paddy wagon. But I think it's important that we focus on the incredible job, the lives saved that this sector has done. We should be very proud of what that is. And do you kind of recognize this dynamic that I think what you described was happening amid a lot of this, that nursing homes were at the center and nobody knew about this. But now that some time has passed, people have started to look at the numbers and they want to pin 
some attention focus. I don't know. Someone said the tail on the donkey. Where do these things occur? Do you find that interesting? And has this happened with the industry before where I don't know if it's a retrospective look where we've got to blame somebody? I, I mean, yeah, I think that's absolutely it. I mean, if there were, if pointing fingers saved a single life, you could have all 10 of mine. I say it all the time. I think we have very short memories in America, not just in policymaking, but in politics writ large. Um, I think this is just one of those situations. Sometimes you start the season 0-4 and, and you have to fire your offensive coordinator. You know, you don't think about the fact that last offseason we didn't go out and get a good quarterback in an offensive line. And so memories are very, very short. And it makes perfect sense that just given how we have constructed policymaking in America that we would point fingers and assign blame. But nobody seems to assign blame to the decades of underfunding that we've seen in Medicaid, for instance. So take a state like Pennsylvania. You're over $40 per day underfunded for every single Medicaid resident. We in policymaking have never valued the life of a Medicaid recipient from the start of Medicaid, and it's getting worse. So, you know, we have these structural issues in this sector that nobody seems to want to address. Would we have been in a better situation if Medicaid paid full cost at the beginning of COVID? I suspect we would have. Um, this sector still has three and four bed wards, right? So when you think about three and four patients in a room with a respiratory virus, of course, that's going to be a big problem. You know, but we did, you know what we did? We went to the administration and to policymakers in Congress and said, you guys are looking at a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Here's some good infrastructure. You create hard hat construction jobs in your individual congressional districts to retrofit these nursing homes to take care of the patient of the future. They don't want to be in a four bedroom or a three bedroom. And frankly, it might be unsafe from, uh, you know, from an epidemiological standpoint. We were ignored. And so now we're going to point fingers and blame and say that nursing homes were somehow responsible for these deaths. And I'm offended by that. Okay, very good. Now, uh, you touched on something I wanted to get at. Uh, I think we counted 20, 21 bullet points in this reform package that uh, the administration put out just before it's State of the Union. Anything good in there that you saw? Anything so that people outside can't say, well, they're just throwing up their arms and putting up the brick wall? Yeah, no, first of all, I would say, again, how convenient if the people that are actually providing this care were included in some of the development of those 20 or 21 bullet points. Uh, my friend Mike Wasserman will tell you that we need geriatricians and experts in post-acute care at that table. He's completely right. We need providers. We need CNAs. They, they're the ones that, I mean, if you think about a CNA, they're an ADL expert, activities of daily living. Nobody deals with ADLs more than CNAs. Let's put them at that table. They need a voice in this. And yet what we see are bureaucrats and advocates and probably unions inside a room telling us what we're going to do. So they developed those 21 points. Are there good things in those 21 points? I think so. I mean, if you think about transparency, I mean, there are a lot of advocates who seem to believe that this sector has something to hide. And I'll be honest with you, I think that we would love to shine a light on the actual good care that we deliver. I don't think that your good provider has anything to hide here. Um, if, if shining additional light and transparency um, can get down to the root of someone who wants into this sector, who is maybe a bad apple, a bad actor, let's root them out. Let's prevent them from ever getting in in the first place. I think that you could find a lot of providers that could get behind this, but what is the end point? Is this something where we're going to have 
disclosure after disclosure after disclosure until you find one dollar that's been misappropriated and then they can say, aha, we got them. This entire sector is horrendous and they're crooks and liars. I feel like there are some in the advocate community who probably will be pushing for that. But instead, I think, again, if we can like trust the um, the intent of everyone in this space, that the number one priority is going to be the highest quality of care delivered to a patient and that we were, are looking to provide one of the best possible workplaces for, you know, the three million people that take care of, of patients in this space, then I think we can get somewhere. Very good, very good. And it should be pointed out of those 2021 points, not all of them were aimed at the provider community, right? That's right, that's right. But But I will also say of those 20 and 21 points, I didn't see much funding attached to any of those. Yeah. You know, there's one study that shows that it's over $500,000 per facility to pay for just the minimum staffing piece alone. And if that study is correct, what we would have to do is go to Congress and ask Congress to appropriate enough money to cover $500,000 per facility. And the way Congress does that is they look at a 10-year bill. That 10-year window would cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $75 billion dollars. Will Congress designate $75 billion to pay for that minimum staffing provision? I'm skeptical, but I don't know another way to get this done. We talked a little bit about workforce challenges. And as we reported here at McKnight's, you know, trying to find and keep employees is obviously very tough out there. But there are statistics that we've reported. Nursing homes are probably having the toughest time of any healthcare sector, such as hospitals and other acute care. I think they're back to within one to two percent of their staffing. Um, you know, what does all of this tell you about what LTC can do as a sector and needs to do? Being a nurse aide in a nursing home, like I said earlier, is the toughest job in America. Um, not only do you have wages that are probably not where they should be, but you are dealing with some of the toughest physical demand in healthcare. Um, the last, the last uh, data that I saw showed that nursing homes have lost about 15% of their workforce since the beginning of the pandemic, since February of 2020. Hospitals were hovering right about 1% to 2% down still. Um, so many nurses have also gone to nurse staffing agencies. They'll leave their benefits behind at their employer. They'll go to a nurse staffing agency, and they will indeed see some, you know, a bump up in their in their wages. What we as a provider see, we'll see nurses who leave, join a staffing agency, show back up 48 hours later, and our outlay for that nurse's time is 3x or 4x. We see that in our hospital setting. We see that in the nursing home setting. And it's one thing, I, I, it's, it's, when, when providers complain about this, and Congress had some complaints about this to the administration, the the instant reaction from the nursing community is you don't want nurses being paid more and that's absolutely not the case what i don't want to see happen is that growth that is unsustainable in wages in this economy with 40 percent of it going to a nurse staffing agency owner somebody who's not at the bedside you know if 70 percent of a nursing home's wages come from the government be it medicaid or medicare and 40 percent of that goes into the pocket of a nurse staffing agency owner that's theft. If, if I always say this, if I'm a gas station in the middle of a hurricane, a declared crisis, and I crank my prices up to $18 a gallon, I go to jail and nobody blinks an eye. But in this case, it's the exact same thing happening in a declared public emergency, and these folks are taking advantage of it. And 
We see that in all of our settings, in the hospital setting, in the nursing home setting, in the middle of the largest workforce crisis in American history. I think Congress has a vested interest in this. I think the administration should absolutely be looking into it from both the SEC and the Department of Justice. And I think that each individual state's attorneys general should be looking into this as well, because there is no question this is price gouging. Um, it's price gouging 101. This is not business to consumer, but it's business to business. And when you're dealing with that much government money, I really hope that these folks dig into this and try to figure out a way out of here. That is something will be interesting to track going forward. I know there have been several lawmakers who have pushed on that, too, and we'll be keeping an eye on that. Now, I want to turn to uh, the topic of health equity and post-acute care. It's become a rising topic from CMS on down, and certainly with ProMedica. Now, I was hoping you can remind us a little bit about ProMedica's, well, I call it somewhat unique mission in this regard, and give some insight on where you think these big issues are headed for all providers, long-term care providers. Yeah, permit it. we have a, a really unique viewpoint into health equity, the social determinants of health. You know, Primedica, we have 11 hospitals, 1,200 physicians, we have an insurance product, but we're also the largest not-for-profit nursing home provider in the country. We provide assisted living, home health, and hospice. So we really are sort of a front door to back door, um, you know, viewpoint into healthcare. And through each one of those business divisions that we have in healthcare, the social determinants of health really sort of weave their way through as we, a mission-driven organization, sort of focus on the patient. So you'll hear this over and over, but you know, 20% of a person's healthcare happens inside our clinical walls, be it an emergency department, a hospital, or a nursing home. Really, 80% of that person's healthcare takes place where they live in the community. It's their hunger, it's their housing, it's their isolation. And we really take a, a really firmly rooted look into this. You know, from the nursing home side, home health, hospice, you know, the president really um, jumped out, gosh, in the first few months of his administration and said, we're going to denote $400 billion to home care. And a lot of people had never heard that type of, of money. If, if you think about what a typical market basket looks like for nursing homes, $400 billion would be a thousand years of nursing home market basket increases, a millennium. So it's an unheard of sum of money. And that's wonderful. Let's 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 pump up money into home care in order to make sure that if somebody is able to be cared for at home, that they can. But what about that Medicaid patient in urban Baltimore who doesn't have a safe home to go home to or maybe doesn't have a home at all? What happens to them? Right. So as we are putting layers of unfunded mandates on top of nursing homes because we don't like them or because it feels good. As they start putting up for sale signs or closing, and we're seeing a lot of closures already starting to happen, where does that Medicaid patient go? You know, Jim, you or I might be able to afford, you know, in-home care here with a private nurse. Uh, maybe we have, you know, we're blessed to have a safe home that we can be taken care of. But what about those others? Again, I come back to, do we value Medicaid patients in this country the way that we value everyone else? And I would tell you, I hope so. I know what our hearts say, but the public policy does not follow. Um, so I, I think it's really, really important that we think about what is what from a health equity standpoint, what does it mean if you are an African-American in inner city Philadelphia or, you know, a white suburbanite outside of Toledo? I think it's important to know that those two individuals are going to be getting different health care. If we're not asking the question why and not devoting both time and resources to closing that gap, 
What we're doing is we're creating a two-tiered health system. We have one for the haves and one for the have-nots. It seems very ironic that it, that gap seems to be widening right now. And as nursing homes start closing and we enter this access to care crisis that I'm convinced we're going to be faced with, the, the distance between the haves and have-nots is only going to get wider. And then what? That is a great question for the future, no doubt about it. And with that, I just wanted to quickly look. Pandemic has, it's, it is life. You know, you can't just ask a question. We were talking about that. What do you think about pandemic conditions? This. So I wanted to ask you in closing here, five years from now, what do you think is going to be part of the lexicon? What is going to be every day maybe that isn't even strongly on providers' radar now? Uh, that when we look back and say, can you believe we even ha had to discuss that five years ago? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll say this from the outset, Jim. You know me well enough to know I'm a Chicago Cubs diehard fanatic, so I'm a perpetual optimist. I'm going to say that I think that this year that we are in and maybe the next one will be the wake-up call that we all need to come together to realize that if we don't do this thing together, arm in arm, then the patient's going to be the one that suffers, you know, and, I, and I'll keep using that Medicaid patient in urban Baltimore. How best do we serve her, right? And so I know that, you know, you innovate or die. That, that's every sector in America from Silicon Valley to Toledo, Ohio, you innovate or die. And so, you know, you're starting to see some movement in things like AI, virtual reality. I think that, that all those will be a part of this. I think about the work that uh, our good friends at Direct Supply are doing up in Milwaukee with their innovation center. And they are, they're trying some of these things out. And I'm sure they'll try some things that don't work and you'll move on to the next. But they are, they are doing some serious innovative work in the future of senior care. I know that AI and tech will be a part of this. But also at the same time, this is one of those few industries that you can't automate yourself out of. Right. You can automate your Taco Bell worker. You can automate your you know, drone deliveries of your Amazon packages. But at the end of the day, somebody is going to be sitting bedside and holding the hand of a Medicaid patient to try to get them better or to, in the case of a hospice, you know, give them dignity at the end of life. There's no way to do that without the human touch. If we don't figure out this workforce crisis right now, then that access to care crisis will be the only thing we're talking about in five years. So I'm very optimistic, hopefully, that we can all come together and just say, you know what, what we've been doing, it's not working. It's not working on behalf of, in some cases, the provider community. It's not working on behalf of, you know, the shaming that this sector will get in the New York Times. This is not uh, productive to just, you know, whine all day on Twitter like some of us do, myself included, and not do something real with it, right? The time for talk is over, and it's time to act. Well, some outstanding thoughts, Brian, and there's no question that's why so many people look to you as a leader in the industry. And I want to point out, Brian, that this has been a wonderful example that a Cubs fan and a White Sox fan can have a very fruitful, insightful conversation. And maybe that's a, a, a precursor of how we should all conduct ourselves collaboratively in the future. If Hopefully, you and I can bridge that gap, then I guarantee that the rest of us can too. There you go. Uh, Chicago baseball, for those of you out there who don't know, sometimes you're a Cubs fan or a White Sox fan, and very rarely both. Uh, or if you are, we kind of question whether you're sincere about that. But we're both off to a great start this year, and hopefully this has been a discussion that will be indicative of what all the stakeholders can do in the future. So with that, I want to say this is Jim Berklin again signing off, and on behalf of our special guest, Brian Perry, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. This has been a McKnight's Newsmaker podcast. 
We'll see you next time. Until then, we wish you good health and outstanding days ahead. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in long-term care, senior living, and home care news, visit mcknights.com.